write the email, expose your reasoning, be vulnerable for a minute, ask for feedback, take the feedback and do something with it so that next time your reasoning is a little bit better and do a bunch of reps and you'll be better at it. So I'm not the greatest strategist in the world, but I think that's how I developed some of my strategic muscles. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Welcome back to In-Depth. I hope you're having a great start to your 2023. I can't wait for all the great conversations we're going to bring you this year. Please reach out on Twitter or email review at firstround.com if you have any guest suggestions for who we should have on the show this year. For today's episode of In-Depth, I'm thrilled to be joined by Mike Buford, the CTO of Greenhouse. I've known Mike for a number of years now, and he's one of the most thoughtful engineering leaders I've encountered. As an example, he wrote a great article on the first round review on why teams shouldn't aim for zero regrettable attrition. And we'll drop a link in the show notes for that piece. But what's also notable about Mike is that for as long as I've known him, he's been at the same company. He wrote the first line of code at Greenhouse in May of 2012, and he's still there over a decade later. Obviously, this isn't the typical path of a non-co-founding engineer. Usually, an early engineering leader gets layered by a more experienced executive as the business scales, or they leave because they're no longer feeling fulfilled or challenged in their role. In our conversation today, we unpack how Mike avoided this common scenario. We dive into how founders build an environment that makes early employees want to stay, and importantly, how leaders can build the career skills and self-awareness they need to succeed at a startup long term. As we dig into the factors that contributed to his long tenure at Greenhouse, Mike shares how his own motivation changed over time and how he managed his relationship with the company's co-founders. We also get into the techniques he used to prepare himself for every next phase of growth and how his role would have to change every 18 to 24 months. I really love all the helpful tidbits Mike shared throughout our conversation. From the bigger task of how he worked on becoming more strategic as a leader to the micro tactic on how he read two books on every other executive's area of the business when he joined the leadership team. Whether or not you're an engineering leader, I think there's a ton of career lessons to draw from Mike's experiences, especially if you're an early hire trying to find your footing or a founder trying to set the right cultural tone. And now my conversation with Mike. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So one place I thought we could start, uh, you're one of the few non-founder CTOs that has made it a decade at one startup through the transition to a very large business. And I'm curious, why do you think that's been the case for you? It's a good question. I don't know that I have the complete answer, but I do get asked this question sometimes, and I think I have some perspective. 
So number one, I think actually aligning with like the right founders in the first place probably plays an outsized role. Like, are you going to be the right type of person that they want to partner with long term? So I think that's a thing that maybe is you know, a combination of luck and good intuitions at the beginning. A lot of the other stuff, I, I think there's maybe two different lenses I'll apply, one of which is the lens of what kept me there so long. Because I think when you end up building a successful business, you have more and more options over time. So what causes you to stick around and continue investing there versus putting your energy towards something else. And the other one was maybe like the survival lens, which is every single role in Greenhouse has had at least a couple of other folks go through the executive team over time. And so frankly, I fully expected at the beginning that I would be replaced by the right person at the right time. And I kind of had that in my mind the entire time. It was like, you know, the best thing for the business is to hire the right person for the job. And the only thing that's really within my control is whether or not I am the right person for the job at the right time. And so maybe I'll actually start there, which is, I think at the very beginning, I felt like, all right, there's this business that I can go join with these two founders who have actually done stuff before, and I can learn from them. And that's kind of my worst case. My worst case is I show up, I've taken a salary cut and done all of that stuff that you have to do in the early days of startups. You're working for a company no one's ever heard of. And then I thought I'm in it for the learning experience. And in a year or two, I'm going to go off and I'm going to found my own business. Well, it turns out like 10 months later, after writing the first line of code, we made our first sale and actually had our first customer. If you flash forward about six months from that moment, we had built a business that looked like it was going to take off. I think we had Airbnb, Pinterest, Uber, and Snapchat were four of our first 20 customers. And so sort of some of the fastest growing, biggest potential, most interesting startups had placed a bet on us. And so I started changing my own perception of what the reality could be with this business and what role I wanted to play. And so I started getting into my head, the things that I didn't love about other workplaces, I could actually change here. We're building it from scratch. I could make this the workplace that I actually want to be at every day. And so when I saw that opportunity, I felt like, well, I can create my own environment. You don't get to do that when you go join a thousand person company or you join an already established culture. That was kind of a motivating factor. And that kept me grounded in like, okay, I need to build out fairness and respect and you know growth and you know the ability to make changes and all of those things into the culture. And then I need to always look maybe a year and a half out and say, okay, well, what is it in 18 months? Because I always say that you know, maybe an executive is, is bound to survive 18 to 24 months in a startup. What is it in 18 or 24 months that will be expected from my role? And what can I do to make sure that I'm actually ready for those things? And I think one of the big readiness things that people often forget is you have to stop doing the previous job. This is like a key survival thing. You're kind of the first level engineering manager. And then what's really required is that you build a recruiting brand and level up the technical stack and make sure that the site gets stable. Those are maybe some early responsibilities of the sort of head of engineering role. You have to stop doing a lot of those things and hand it off to someone else and then focus on the next job. So maybe the next job is something more like you know the VP job where um, you have to operationalize processes across a growing group. You have to make it function autonomously. You have to keep employee engagement high and do all these things at scale. You have to communicate at scale. And so you have to shift a lot of how you operate. You have to hire the right people and make sure that they're doing the right things and you have the right sort of processes and meta processes for iterating on your processes baked into the team's culture. 
And when you have all of those things, you can step into this next role, which is kind of an open space. And so I always felt like I did that over and over again every year and a half or two years and occupied the different job. And so now we're 10 years in and a lot of my job now is like corporate strategy and product strategy and M&A stuff and being an internal figurehead and you know an external voice to customers and to the market. And so that job is obviously totally different from write the first lines of code and you know, set basic sort of infrastructural requirements about how to keep things up and how to build out processes for a team. And so I always saw like, what is that next job? and what do I need to learn? And around that point, when I saw what was coming, that's when I would really start focusing my learning. And so I'm doing whatever the job is that needs to be done today, but I'm making a plan for who I need to hire. I'm reading books. So like when I knew the strategy thing was coming, like, oh, I got to know what I'm talking about here and actually have some good opinions on it. I read like three or four strategy books, <laughs> for example, that helped give me a grounding and like, what is the language that needs to be used? When I realized I was going to be part of an exec team for the first time, I read two books on every other person's area of the business. So I read like two marketing books and two sales books and took like a finance course. I just tried to make sure I understood how the whole thing kind of worked together. And I think that was transformative. And then I relied a ton on, you know, intros from maybe people like you, uh, you know, to, you know, venture capitalists or other board members or people I knew in the community who had already been there and done that. And you don't have to experience every pain from scratch. You can learn from other people. And so I found a lot of the things that I needed to tackle other people had done before and even failed that and had some good insights and wisdom that I could take with me. That's a good framing. Lots to dig in on there. I guess one piece that you left out is I like the idea that for someone to be successful in a role, they need two things. They need to be competent at the thing and they need motivation to do the thing. What did you figure out about motivation? And did you want to be doing that thing 18 months later versus what you were doing 18 months previous? I think my motivation changed over time, to be perfectly honest. At the very beginning, I think my motivation was I need to learn how to build a company. If I go way back to when I was like 18 or 19 years old, I had been programming like in my room and trying to dream up products and, and make things for a while. And I went out after high school and actually started two companies, both of which didn't particularly go well. And at that point, I had actually hit kind of like a low in my life where I maxed out all of my credit cards. And thankfully, they only give you like $7,000 worth of credit limits when you're like 18 or 19 and have no real income of any sort. And so I'd run out of money. It was 2001. I was, you know, 9-11 happened. I was you know, unable to raise more money. And I kind of fell into like a little bit of a funk around it. And I think the funk was interesting when I pick it apart. And this does relate you know, back to your question, which is that part of it was this feeling like maybe you can't do this. Maybe you're not someone who can make your dream happen. You're not someone who can make all these things real. And so I kind of like decreased the scope of my ambitions for a little while. And I like did my undergrad and I ran my consulting business and you know, just kind of focused on plotting through there, assuming like I'm going to you know need this degree. And that was not quite the fantasy that I had as a kid. And I started writing off the idea of building something as a little bit of a fantasy. And I think I had this realization while I was traveling a bit in my mid twenties, where it was like, you know what, maybe that fear I have about not knowing what to do is rational. <laughs> and that was kind of a moment. It was like, okay, well, if it's rational that I know I don't know how to build like a billion dollar business from scratch, what can I do in order to close that gap? 
and you know actually learn what it takes in order to succeed and i started thinking about like an orchestral performance right it's like if you've never seen an orchestra play something before it's like you well maybe you don't know about the crescendo maybe you don't know about how songs end or how songs begin or what needs to change over time and all of those things i felt like were analogous to company building that i didn't really know enough to be able to improvise successfully all the way through from beginning to end. And that motivated me to want to join Greenhouse and join two founders that already knew what they're doing. So at the very beginning, you know, to get back to your earlier question, it was really about learning. Like I, I felt like I want to learn from people who really know what they're doing, what it takes to build a company. And I still feel 10 years in that I'm learning about how to build a company. They're improvising at this point as well. We're almost a thousand person company. It's the biggest company that any of us have ever been a part of building. But, you know, I think I learned a ton about what the early movements look like. I learned about the struggles and how to reason about the next stage and how to make it successful along the way. And I think that's actually been one of the core motivators. Now, there was also this big identity shift I had to go through, maybe even several times in a couple of different phases through my time at Greenhouse, where towards the beginning, it was like, okay, I'm going to come in, I'm going to learn, and then I'm going to leave as soon as possible so I can go start my own company. And that lens, I started challenging a little bit. So it's about four years in, Greenhouse had raised its Series C, I think it was maybe valued at $250 million or something at that point. So I put a ton into it. And I started talking with the founders. And I was like, you know, I want to stay like this is exciting. I have this other dream I've kind of been focused on. And so, you know, I basically gave them the challenge on some level of like, what do we need to do in order for this to be my best choice? I think involved a bunch of different things that involved the level of autonomy I had. I was sort of treated like a peer, I think, in many ways throughout that time and engaged in all aspects of, of running the business. So I got to sort of have something that was more like a co-founder experience, even though I was not a co-founder, than a functional area leader experience as the company was growing. Of course, there's like, how do I participate in the upside of this thing that's going really well? So, you know, that's just, of course, an implementation detail, sort of like necessary, but not sufficient on its own. And I would think I went through a you know, few different waves with it about, when you hit your lows, like when COVID happened and we had to do a layoff of you know a bunch of people and you see a quarter of your friends and colleagues disappear in an instant, those types of lows, I think a lot of people are like, am I doing the right thing with my life right now? Is this going to, to scratch all my itches? And so I think I had a few different moments where I sort of reassessed, does the identity I want to have in the future line up with the future I'm expecting to have here? And as I inspected those questions, the answer just kind of kept being yes. And so here I am, you know, 10 years later, having uh, both survived and not been topped by someone more qualified yet, although I fully expect that to be the case at, at some point whenever I'm no longer the right person for the job. And I'm still feeling sort of intrinsically motivated to, to build this thing. And you know, maybe the last note on that is I know that I am not a co-founder of the company. I wasn't in the room sitting there when the idea for structured hiring and how to layer it into the recruiting market was formed. At the same time, I think the shift in identity from this is somebody else's company to this is my company actually really helped because it, it, it changed the relationship I had to the work in a way that allowed me to feel like, you know, I am building my own business. I'm building it. I think it happened in a few different phases. Like I definitely felt that way with the engineering culture at the beginning. Like this is my team. I can build it how I want. When did that happen? 
I think maybe this is an interesting topic and I don't know how shared this is, but I think it's often true that in these early stage startups, because you have less product than market demand for it, you end up with the engineering organization being one of the first larger organizations. And of course, eventually you get really big and like engineering shouldn't be the biggest organization anymore in, in most companies. But I got to be sort of the first one with no HR person to go create like the people pay practices and what cadence we set up for growth conversations and all these different things. And I think a lot of that imprinting of like what we did in engineering got brought into the rest of the company made me feel like, oh, this is a company I shaped. I helped make all the culture and processes and all of this stuff. Like it's lots of people all working together, but I could see my imprint on it. And I think that was significant. And then again, I think that moment after the COVID layoffs, when I was thinking about, is the trajectory still going to be good? Like what's happening in the world? Like I think all of us kind of had some level of existential crisis around that time period. But as I thought about it more and more, it was like, you don't abandon your kid kind of thing is almost what it felt like. It was like, no, this is my company. I helped build it. I need to steward it through the rough times. And to the degree that I'm still the right person for the job, it's both my responsibility and my desire to be there and show up. You touched on the conditions that the founding team created to enable this 10-year career that you've had at Greenhouse, but I'd be interested if other founders want to create the conditions such that there are more career trajectories that look like Mike. What would the advice that you have for them, maybe outside of the generic that everyone talks about, which is give people opportunities, support them? What are the levers that come to mind if other founders want to create an environment such that there are more people that look like you? Maybe I'll break it down into innate plus environment, because I think the intersection of those is probably where the answer lies. Maybe these are personality traits that I believe are central to my identity and were only reinforced by my experience at Greenhouse. Probably number one was adaptable. I don't just say like growth mindset. I mean, like adaptable, like I could actually fundamentally change even how I'm processing and thinking about the world a bit, depending on the conditions. And so startups being incredibly dynamic environments, I think usually the failure mode is that people don't end up changing fast enough at the right moments. So I think I was always proactive in adjusting myself. And that is a difficult thing to interview for, but that might actually be a good thing if you were hiring early employees. Usually I think it's just like, will someone please join my brandless, moneyless venture that is my idea as the first employee and help me make it real. I think in that desperate situation, there's often not a ton of scrutiny on adaptability, nor is there an expectation that whoever they end up hiring is actually going to be the person who would continue scaling. And so there's maybe low emphasis there. So that might be an area for high emphasis. If you actually want to hire someone, it's more like hiring your co-founder maybe, right? Is this somebody who has unlimited potential to scale? Is it someone who can participate in the creative and strategic process and and are they going to be able to change over time in the ways that the company is going to demand? And then in terms of environmental conditions, I think, well, let's get into, I'll probably get killed for this, but one of the co-founders of Greenhouse is my direct manager, John Strauss, is really a product guy. And you know, he's helped build some pretty great products, obviously, Greenhouse included over time. He was also, I think, first product manager at babycenter.com. And you know, if anyone who's had kids, you've probably used that at some point. He's done call center performance management stuff, all of these things. And the way that he manages because he kind of hates management as a like an activity, like let's sit down and do a performance review and all of those types of things. Not that anyone you know, particularly loves having those types of conversations. He tended to almost automatically like manage by anxiety. 
<laughs> and by that, I mean, he would just sort of express something he was worried about. He would be like, I'm really worried about, you know, whether XYZ thing is going to succeed or happen or whatever it was. And I think that allowed me to be really autonomous in solving big, important problems that the founders saw without ever being assigned a task. And I think he would almost like broadcast some of these anxieties. He would, you know, go chat with all of his direct reports, other people in the company, and just kind of say, I'm anxious about X, Y, Z. And so, you know, if it was appropriate for me to pick up, if I was the right person to go drive some sort of change, I would just say, okay, let me go look into that and go try to work on it. And I think that allowed me to both work on the right stuff and feel deep down that I was discovering and finding and solving for all the right things in the business as it went. So the autonomy was a big part of the environment. Another one that maybe they didn't do specifically with me, but I think probably would be helpful, and it's something that I definitely do with my direct reports, is try to help them envision the future. The thing I do with my direct reports is I'll you know, draw out like what's true of our future plans. What does the business look like in five years if we sustain growth? How many people are in the company? How big is our team? What shape might it take? What are the things that it's going to you know, need to be able to do that it can't do today? What's going to take a long time? What's going to take a short time in order to realize? And so just kind of talking through some of the long-term planning stuff and how that future of the company intersects with the demands on the org helps you kind of break it down almost like stepwise refinements. Like, how do I refine my way to the specific next thing that I need to do? Well, if you can see in two years, what we're going to actually need is multiple VPs and we're going to need to sort of restructure some of the teams and do this or that. That helps provide a clearer picture for both direct reports and I think people who are in a position like like me, where I was you know, sort of head of engineering, to imagine that future if they haven't done it proactively on their own or didn't have enough information to even do so on their own, and then collaborate with them to try to figure out like what it would take for them to get there at the right time. It's like, okay, well, you know what? If in 18 months you need to be doing the strategic role, you need to understand finance well. You need to understand how the whole business works better. You need to understand our partner ecosystem. You need to have enough free time to be able to focus on those things and not do all the sort of day-to-day -day operational stuff, which means you know, the person reporting to you needs to be able to do that really well, or they're not the right person for the job. For the environmental stuff, I think helping them see the future and helping them figure out what the specific plan is so that they can be ready for the future as it comes is probably the most helpful thing I can say. So another thing that you shared a little bit about was the other part of the equation, which is how did you approach your own growth in each chapter of the company's life? You talked about reading other books on functional areas, developing new muscles like strategy through reading, leveraging members of your extended community. But I was wondering if you could share more about that, maybe share some stories or your approach that allowed and enabled your success in all of these different roles over the last decade. One area in particular that I think is important for anyone who's trying to grow and adapt, I have this specific theory around one's identity and like what you should absorb and what you should deflect and what you should work on proactively. And so by that, I mean, there are probably core parts of who you are that you don't want to change and are positive attributes. And they might very well be two-sided coins in certain cases. Many personality attributes are. But at the same time, you want to have that identity. And so, for example, part of my positive identity attributes are one that I talked about already, like I'm adaptable. You know, whatever situation I'm in, I'm pretty sure that I will be able to learn what I need to learn and change at the right pace in order to be able to do the thing well. 
Another one is that I try to be kind to everyone. Now, is that always true? Am I always kind 100% of the time? No, but it's like a personality attribute that I want to have and I think strengthens who I am and how I show up in the world. But I try to take any of those sort of positive things that I think are really fundamental to who I am and absorb them and take them in and accept them as an identity. Now, on the other side, there's all the negative stuff. There's the times when you screw up. There's the times when you don't meet your own or other people's expectations. There's the times when somebody has an opinion about you that is potentially labeling you as one thing or another. You're incompetent. You don't, uh, you know, these are not necessarily things that people are saying of me, but you're incompetent. You're unreliable. You don't complete things on time. You're a real jerk in that meeting, whatever it is. All of those types of things, I very much intentionally will absorb the behavior and deflect the identity. And so the behavior might be that I didn't show up as well as I could have, or somebody asked me to do something and I didn't get it done until three weeks later. And you know, that created some harm. All of those things are sort of like observational data to me. It's like, I can see how I'm behaving and then I need to sort of devise some way in order to take those negative labels turn them into behaviors that I can observe as actions, and then turn those negative behaviors into behaviors that are no longer part of how I'm operating day to day. And so I think that requires a fair amount of self-reflection and, and depth. So sometimes I'll literally sit down and take something I've screwed up and kind of do my own retrospective. So it's not like literally sitting up there with like a whiteboard with, you know, happy, mad, sad, or, or something along those lines. But it's like sitting there and writing with myself and it's, you know, a reflection exercise of how did I feel how did I make this other person feel? What was the context? What other things were going on for me that caused me to behave in that way? What is it that I believe to be true that caused me to make the assumptions I made that caused that interaction to go badly? Just kind of like tearing all of those things apart and trying to surface them so my conscious mind can process them and so that it doesn't all just happen to me subconsciously. I think there's like this default of victimhood almost of like you're a victim of the worst attributes of yourself and it does feel that way sometimes because you're like well the version of myself that I identify with would never have behaved in that way but there it is you did and so sitting down and reflecting on it and coming up with a plan for how to make it better I think is actually a key learning approach that's allowed me to go through some of these cycles and iterate on myself over time. I think that's a good foundation can you go into a little bit more detail in terms of techniques, tactics, things that you did that sort of sat on top of that, that enabled it. You talked about some of the reading that you've done and how that influenced you. Maybe things like when you leveraged other CTOs or other people that were maybe farther along, did you engage with them in a certain way to sort of maximize your own learning? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I've actually done with my peers is even ask them for feedback. And so like I'm in, you know, a few different little CTO pods where, you know, people meet up once a month and some of them I've met with for a really long time and they've gotten to know me. And so usually you bring up some topic and everyone kind of discusses it over breakfast. And so periodically I'd bring up instead of a topic, the question of what is it that you see about the way that I'm thinking, the way I approach problems, whatever it is that I can learn from. And so I've gotten some interesting feedback that's usually very specific and specific to that moment that I can act on really quickly from peers who are sometimes a step ahead. So, you know, just to, I guess, name drop a friend of mine who gave me a specific piece of feedback at sort of just the right moment. 
was uh, Yoni Feng, who's co-founder and CTO of Peloton, um, you know, and helped build that company up. And it was a few years ago. And I think he was going through like super, super hyper growth. You know, the first time I met him, I think he was still building the first prototype of the bike. And we were at some like 2013 CTO conference. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. And we stayed friends over time. And the wisdom he gave me was, I think you're trying to control things a little bit too much. That was a key learning moment just to reflect on, which was in years, let's say, five through eight, where I think I transformed into big team leader, where you have to you know, lead teams of 60, 80, 100, you know, 100 plus people, and you start transitioning into broadcast mode, and you start really focusing on process as opposed to like specific decisions, right? You're trying to figure out how do I create the framework for decisions? I was actually so productive in creating process, probably in that first year and a half, that I kind of got into this default mode where I just kept adding more and more process. And I kind of thought that was my job. And I, I think the company wasn't quite ready for me to paradigm shift at that moment either into more of the strategy role stuff. So I kind of felt like I was wedged into the sort of VP of engineering type job of create process. And I was going too far. And I think what I didn't realize was that that structure, part of which was very much intended to create empowerment, created a level of disempowerment where people felt like, because I was so engaged in every process detail, that processes needed to be run by me or that they needed to do it in the way that I was prescribing and not necessarily change it. And I think that was the right wisdom at the right time for me to absorb. Other times I would be talking about some operational details. This was maybe the same era of like, how did I transition from doing the VP of engineering type job to doing the bigger company CTO type job? Someone was like, I haven't heard you take huge swings. You always make measured decisions. And so like little moments like that, where I kind of have to interrogate myself and say like, is that true? Does that jibe with who I think I am? Does that jibe with like the behaviors I I have? And a lot of times, like, you know, I get that feedback from someone who's been there and done that. It rings true. And that helps me realize at the right moment that I need to get better at something or identify a void that needs to be filled in in the growing business. So I want to loop back to strategy and some of the things you figured out there. But before we move on to sort of this growth thread, a couple of other things sort of came to mind for me. One is that you seem to be quite self-aware that you're able to understand yourself and kind of how you fit into the broader company strengths and weaknesses, et cetera. Is that just a way that you were wired or is part of the journey developing your own self-awareness? I think it's probably both. I think I'm in some ways wired for it, but I, I do remember when I was really young, this might sound slightly unrelated, but I think it's actually deeply related. Every time my parents screwed something up, They would almost always admit it and then say, if there was anything that you think should have been different about how we handled that, because we don't really always know what we're doing, you can do that differently with your kids. And so I think that kind of put in my head, you're not a fixed person. In terms of other ways of reflecting on myself and where I fit in the broader context, I don't even know if I'm thinking about myself, honestly, all that much. I think it's more, there's this like dynamic system of a business. (laughs) in a way. And it has a bunch of inputs and outputs and needs that are met and not met. And, And I think I usually wedge myself into a place where I have the ability to express creative energy. And I think it's because I can get really interested in something that seems important to me. And so I think the task is like identify something that feels important to me, get really interested and kind of like hyper focus on that thing. And I think that lets me leverage my superpowers 
And so I think when I feel bored or I feel like I don't have anything that I can uniquely make a difference in doing, that sort of like stagnation sets in in a way that feels bad. And I want to go find something that makes me sort of feel good, which is like the next interesting problem to go solve that I'm uniquely suited to solve. Does that make sense? It's almost like painkiller. It's like the painkiller is go find something important to solve. In continuing to build on this learning journey, what specific books or essays do you think have stuck with you or maybe had some sort of outsized impact? Yeah, I think some of them might sound sort of standard. I'm going to turn around and look at my bookshelf. So hopefully the microphone is still picking me up. I think things like thinking fast and slow and you know, sort of identifying how your brain works and makes decisions is probably a big part of it. I think like computer science books are actually kind of interesting, especially things around data structures where you start learning how to visualize abstract things and then manipulate them in your head. And I think that was actually sort of a fundamental thing in my own learning journey. And then I think I read really broadly. I don't read probably enough pure fiction, fantasy, and and things like that, that I think actually have an incredible place in human interaction and expanding your mind. I tend to read books that teach me some type of skill or provide me with some type of contextual information that I feel like really enriches me as a person. So examples of a couple of ones that I've just read very, very recently, Thanks for the Feedback, which is one of those books from the Harvard Program on Negotiation, a couple of other great ones I had read before, were uh, Difficult Conversations, which is really interesting in getting to yes. All of those books, I think, are fantastic in thinking about how you communicate and relate to and interact with the world. Another one I read recently was The Power Law, which is really like the history of venture capital. So that's kind of like an ecosystem thing, right? Like I'm not a venture capitalist, but I'm interacting in an ecosystem where venture capitalists play a very significant role. And so understanding like the fundamental mindset, the history, who the players were, all that stuff, I think gave me one little bit of extra context. And that's kind of what I'm always probably seeking the most is how do I understand the dark corners of a problem that I'm working on or a space or environment that I'm in? The exception to that would be professional sports. As a typical CTO, I know nothing about professional sports. (laughs) I couldn't possibly know much less about sports ball. I'm not into sports either, and I kind of feel like maybe I'm missing some important part of humanity. I don't know. But I do save a lot of time. I think I am, right? There's like, (laughs) there's definitely that bit about sports where there's the, how do you get the team excited during like a down moment? How do you get everyone working together and playing their own roles? How do you coordinate a plan? Like, I think all of those things are pretty interesting to me. And I always think it's like amazing to see the performance of all of these athletes, but the like knowing which trades happened and the personality of each player and how they won one particular game. That's the type of stuff I haven't gotten fully immersed in, but maybe one day it will become an interest. I don't let my lack of sports knowledge keep me from using sports metaphors at work. So I feel good about that. Gotta use the sports metaphors at work. One of the things that's been woven through our conversation is the topic of strategy or being strategic. And I'm interested, like, what does that word mean to you, given I think it's so screwed up all of the time? And particularly at scaling companies, I think a lot of people are allergic to the word and maybe related to the classic book, good strategy, bad strategy. Like, how would you articulate good strategy and bad strategy kind of in the context of building a rapidly growing software business? 
So that's a great question. And I think, although I might be conflating them because I read like four strategy books in a row, I might actually use some of his example. And I think right at the beginning of that book, I believe, he's talking about how a lot of people think they have a strategy when they have a goal. They figured out where they're going on some level or some numerical target that they want to achieve, you know, X percent growth. And then they kind of hand off all of the details of the plan to somebody else to figure out. And so then you potentially have people who are even in individual contributor roles in a lot of startups who have to make strategic decisions. And, and the way that they break it down in that book, I think, is the strategy is a combination of figuring out which hill to take that in the context of the broader war advances your goals towards the broader objective of win the war. You don't just take a hill to take a hill. So you have to have clarity on what war you're fighting. You have to figure out which hill to take. And the part that I think is often missing and is a little bit in tension with and requires some reconciliation with empowerment ideas in management is that you actually have to have a plan for how to take the hill. And so the plan doesn't necessarily have to come from the same people. It's not necessarily that like the CEO says, this is the war we're fighting. This is the hill we're going to take. And here are the 4,000 JIRA cards that the developers need to do in order to get there. Like, I don't think that's the sort of right level of plan, but to collaborate and say, you know, here are the specific wedges that we've identified that we think are going to help us to take this hill successfully. This is the sequence in which we should do them. And these are the sacrifices we're making in terms of other things that we could be doing because we think this is the best choice against all of our other choices in order to achieve this strategic objective. I think that complete plan cascades all the way to the people then doing the work and they can follow a road that's actually been cut where they know what to do. And I think you can take more ownership when you are involved in at least signing off on and potentially influencing some of the plan. And I'm, I'm using some of that tentative work because like a plan needs to exist, but it doesn't need to come entirely from the leader. And so I think the worry about like being too prescriptive and saying, do all these things is a valid one. And I think the worry about being not prescriptive enough where there's nothing written down is another valid one. And I think somewhere in between is figuring out how do I do the hard work of actually engaging with the data and all the people that are going to need to sort of make this thing happen and you know any other stakeholders I have and align on a plan that feels like it's gonna actually get us there. So to me, there's probably 50 different ways to spin it around, but you know, from that book, I thought that was a pretty good description, but that just gives you probably the terminology and like a basic mental model for how to do it. Then you actually have to put in the reps. Apparently, as I've discovered, reading a weightlifting book does not make you jacked. <laughs> you know, you can read a weightlifting book, but then you actually have to you know, go lift some weights in order to make your muscles bigger. And as I've been using that more of like, let's figure out how to actually answer the question by, in addition to setting an OKR, you know, you set some goal, it says, improve the SAM to TAM ratio in Germany from two to 15%. I just totally made up a goal. The plan in order to actually execute it requires that you have specific actions you're going to take. So maybe it's like, I'll translate the product. I'll integrate with all of these job boards or other systems that I need to deal with in, in the local market in order to be properly localized. So you've got some set of activities and then you have to presume that those activities will produce the result. So you might have to do a little analysis like, well, if we do this, Will that create the result? What are our other options for increasing SAM to TAM ratio in Germany? And how do we prioritize among them so we're sort of maximizing our bets towards that strategic end? And zooming out one level higher, how do I know that by improving SAM to TAM ratio, it maybe gets me to whatever the laddered up objective is, which is to expand international market share? 
And again, the same level of scrutiny might apply to, should we even go to Germany or should we go to, you know, China or Australia? All of those types of decisions also require the strategic trade-offs and thinking, and it's a lot of work. And I feel like part of it is that not everyone always knows what the work is to do. And once you know what the work is to do, then it's accepting, oh, it's a lot of work to actually figure this stuff out in a good way. Continuing down this strategy conversation, you made a great point about implementing knowledge. You gave the example of you, you read a weightlifting book and you all of a sudden don't get jacked. So what in the context of developing the strategy muscle to mix metaphors here, if weightlifting gets you jacked, what is the thing that you're doing in this realm of strategy to make you good at it or to make you strategic? I think it's you have the opportunity to make decisions and you get some feedback loop on whether they turned out to be good or bad. And sometimes the cycle times are, are kind of long. So probably whether or not you're actually good at it. Did you make, let's say, 15 decisions? Could be just randomness that something ends up striking 10 out of 15 times and you kind of got lucky. But most of the time, probably if you were right 10 out of 15 times, it was because you have learned something, gotten better. So like, do you see improvement in your ability to reason about these things? So that's actually the execution lens. Like I've done it, I see whether the result actually worked. The intermediate thing that I think I've actually been leveraging quite a bit is you put something out there, like I'll take an M&A example. So some company comes in opportunistically and they say, I would love to sell my business to your business. And you have to go find out more and figure out like, would this actually be a big fit? So one question is, how do I then reason about those things in a way that is going to resonate with other people? Like, let's say we actually wanted to buy the company, we would have to make a case to the board. What would be the components of that case? and why. What is the overall framework of what makes sense for our company? So maybe there's like a scorecard for acquisitions generally. Does it go against the hiring or recruiting budget? So it would fit into our existing go-to-market engine, or would it actually be like a big change to our distribution engine? We would have to build a totally different machine and that's too high a hurdle to reach, right? And then if you then also are evaluating companies, you can you know, write up little emails and share it with the CEO or board members and say, you know, this is how I reasoned about this decision. Does this resonate or not? And those stakeholders can then provide feedback. It's like, well, I totally think that you are right about what would happen to gross margin if we went and did XYZ thing, but I don't totally agree that it wouldn't be worth it because of you know, some other thing. And I think that helps you sort of learn and converge on a model that at least maps to what a lot of the other experienced folks think. And so I don't know if it always gets you to the optimal answer, because sometimes the group consensus is actually wrong for some important reason. You have to keep an eye out for those times when that's true. But most of the time, if you're surrounding yourself by people who really know any domain and know it well and have gone through a bunch of reps, they're probably going to have some good thoughts that you can learn from. And so I think it's actually like rubber meets the road. Write the email, expose your reasoning, be vulnerable for a minute, ask for feedback, take the feedback and do something with it so that next time your reasoning is a little bit better and do a bunch of reps and you'll be better at it. So I'm not the greatest strategist in the world, but I think that's how I developed some of my strategic muscles. I think in studying a lot of companies in the way that they operate to sort of a slight degree, I think that strategy and another word might be direction is slightly overrated and rate of execution is slightly underrated. And part of that is that I just think the future is hard to predict. Reality is very complicated. And the amount of learning that happens when you do a thing is so substantial relative to trying to pick the exact right direction. Do you agree or disagree with that line of thinking? 
I strongly agree. And like all things that I might answer, I would say it probably depends a little bit. At the beginning, like you probably have to pick the right overall direction and then execute, 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 execute without spending tons of time philosophizing on the edge of a cliff. Like that's not going to get you anywhere. So I do think it's very execution focused as long as you're moving in the right direction so that you can have the best product be first to market. Wow, your users do all the things to sort of establish yourself from zero to one. Going towards where we are now, we can still be agile with certain decisions, but we can't be agile with every decision. It's a cruise ship. And so trying to steer it from one place to another is taking longer and longer. And so I still think speed of execution matters, but there's always a trade-off with speed. Well, so is the trade-off that the decision quality goes down? Is the trade-off that it leads to burnout? There's usually some type of other side to whatever that coin is that may or may not make it actually worth it to go super, super fast. But I think trying to map out a little bit further out how are we going to make like a five degree turn in the business so we actually land on a different island than we were planning? I do think that becomes more relevant. And so you're not just expending energy in lots of directions that don't actually change things. You don't want to tug left and tug right and end up going to the same place that you were going before, having spent a bunch of resources. If you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on building a business, I think the dollar numbers and the consequences and the number of people required in order to get somewhere are so large that it is important to at least have a couple of people thinking far enough in the future, slowing down, doing some analysis, and then making the hard decision of focusing the efforts in some direction instead of letting it go in a bunch of different directions. And so the frenetic early startup energy, I think, is useful and helps for innovation and building a brand from scratch. But I do think at the very late stages of a startup, then a little bit more sort of thoughtful analytical steering, and then try to execute as quickly as you can without sacrificing the other critical things to make it successful at scale. Switching gears just a little bit, are there mantras or things that you tend to say over and over again when you're developing or coaching people on your team? Or if I were to just watch you at work over the last three or five years, there's things that you tend to come back to, frameworks that you teach, or things that you say all the time that people might be sick of hearing you say? Yeah, I have one that I think people actually feared for quite some time, which I think was actually maybe the most useful thing I did as an early-ish startup team builder, which was to make whatever people were complaining about their problem and find out what people were complaining about. <laughs> and so like, you know, I would, I would spend lots and lots of time in one-on-ones with everyone. It doesn't totally scale to the team size that I have now to go have one-on-ones with every single person in the team on a regular basis. But I was doing that, especially when we were, you know, 20 or 30 people, I was still meeting with everyone once a month. And I would try to ask sort of specific tactical questions about where the pain was. And I found some really weird ways of finding it, like saying, If I were to ask all of your teammates what the biggest problem is that you all are seeing, what would it be? And that just sort of like allows that person to explain somebody else's opinion instead of their own, which can feel risky when they're talking to like their manager's manager. So that little trick, I think, you know, it may not actually be the consensus opinion that that same person holds, but it helps bubble up some of what's happening inside the teams. Another thing is that, you know, they often broadcast retro notes like, okay, we had a retro, we complained about a bunch of stuff and said some things were good. And then it gets emailed out to the whole team. And so then there's kind of like a list of things to go work on. Usually there's action items assigned. Sometimes it's just dangling there and you notice it over and over again. So the specific trick of what I do, which I don't think is is magic, but does require that you get your managers bought into if you're a leader and you do have some layer involved, which is to say, if somebody sees a problem with, let's say, how the interviews are being conducted, 
how the on-call rotation is going, the lack of a policy for XYZ, whatever the thing was, I would always challenge that person to go do the work. And then I would not have them do it in addition to their day job. I would defend their time. I would say to their manager, hey, for the next week, this person is going to go try to solve you know, problem X and assign them the task. So on the upside, people definitely felt like, you know what, it's not on management to fix everything. It's on us. And I think they felt like they could take some ownership over the changes that were happening in their culture. I had that whole theory I kind of laid out in my first round review article, which kind of culminated in people don't feel fairly treated or respected or like they're growing. Those were often things that contributed to people leaving their companies. But the nail in the coffin is kind of always that they don't feel like they have the power to change their environment. If they felt like they could change it so that it was more fair or change it such that it would be a good place for them to grow. Then all of those things led to more engagement, more retention, and frankly, more action whenever problems surfaced inside of the team. And I think that habit probably played a pretty big role in setting the culture. So I wanted to wrap up by talking a little bit about hiring. And the area that I wanted to spend time on is how do you approach recruiting people like you? And what I mean by that is, I assume kind of given your own journey, one of the things maybe depends on role, maturity, et cetera, is that you want to hire people that are this sort of steep trajectory that have the ability to really grow with the company in profound ways. And at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about the idea of, of adaptability, but I'm curious kind of specifically in the box of hiring people for slope or people that you can bet on that you think can have a really big career in your org. What are you looking for in those people? And maybe just as importantly, when you're sitting down with them or you're referencing them, what are you doing to increase the quality of that forecast and that hiring decision? I might answer first by saying it's easier to observe probably in advance and be right about people with slow slope than people with fast slope. Sometimes fast slope is obvious, but yeah, I can give a couple of examples. So someone with a slow slope, sometimes we'll interview someone and they're super nice. And, you know, they've been a software engineer for 10 years and they have, let's say, weirdly lower than average pay expectations for somebody with that experience. And they go through the interview process and they test as like a software engineer three, who is, you know, someone we would expect to, let's say, be a few years into their career. If it's taken 10 years to get to the level of someone who's about three years, that's probably a slow slope person. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. It doesn't prohibit them from being good in the future. It could have been their environment. It could have been their motivation at the time. But when I observe that, I kind of see that as, well, let's draw the line out and imagine if that slope continues, do we end up with someone great? And the answer, I think, is often no. Going the other way, sometimes you see someone, and I'm sure you experience this constantly as a venture capitalist, but you see someone who just looks like they have unbelievable slope. It's practically vertical. They double Stanford, went and worked for BCG or you know Bain or something, and had a, an impressive chief of staff role at some big company or something. And they're like, okay, I want to go found a company. So that person has probably a steep slope. I know some of those people turn out to be amazing founders, but some of them, that whole experience that they've had, put them on a really fast slope towards something else and not necessarily the slope that you would need in order to be successful at something as unstructured and volatile as starting a company from scratch. And so I think maybe I'm just adding a layer to the question, which is 
you can find fast slope and realize that it's still going, the vector is still going in the wrong direction for startup success. The fast slope towards startup success, I do think it's like adaptability, versatility. Like, are they somebody who can you know, reason across the board? Are they good at the quantitative stuff and the communication stuff? Are they someone that is like naturally attractive to be around? Like, I'm not a big fan of the charismatic leader prototype. They have all charisma and, and sort of nothing else. But can they be someone that people like and they want to be around and they want to learn from? If that's not true, then they're probably not going to do a great job of hiring. Are they somebody who is intellectually sort of flexible enough that they can walk off their own ideas through sort of logical discussion of something? And are they curious and interested in other people's ideas? All of those things, I think, are pretty high slope for startups. But you take that exact same person, you put them in, let's say, an analyst or banking job at a place like Goldman, and 90% of what makes them amazing for a startup doesn't apply. And so they might actually be like the bottom 25% in that job, but are top 10% or top 1% in the startup world. So I think the vector is different, not just the sort of slope of the line. So with that outline, adaptability, versatility, attractive to be around intellectual flexibility, those kind of attributes. How does that show up in the way that you interview someone or get to conviction that you think this person exhibits those traits? First of all, this kind of goes against the structured interviewing ethos <laughs> is that they're observable. So if we take something like, is this someone who I want to be around, who I think can recruit other talent, you get some of that from actually sitting down and talking to them. It's not just you ask the one magic question that you know tells you whether or not that's true. But if the thing that you're really trying to figure out is, are they someone who knows how to hire well and hire effectively, as opposed to just do they have the personality that might translate to that, then you can get kind of more specific and ask both behavioral interview questions or in past experiences, how did you actually go up and build the team that you built and do some top grading, which is, you know, where you kind of like go deeper and deeper on some topics. So it's like not just how do you interview, but can you tell me about a time within that where you hired the wrong person, where you attracted the best person ever and developed them, you know, you kind of keep going down some of the paths that they lay out. In terms of something like versatility, you probably want to see some evidence in their lives that they actively seek and choose different types of experiences. Like I think somebody who is interested in jazz and cooking and strategy and a million different things, that's probably somebody who has a bit of a versatile mindset. Somebody who gets hyper-focused and is great at one thing is probably someone who is less of a versatilist and is probably somebody who is more of like a focus master. And then in terms of adaptability, yeah, I, th I think I actually have an opinion on this, but I don't know how easy it is to interview for other than to ask about their life experiences. But have they put themselves in lots of different uncomfortable settings where they've had to actually adapt? That probably helps support them in being adaptable when they join your company. When you think about these sort of steep trajectory type people, is there a nuance in like, is their trajectory and ambition oriented around themselves or oriented around the company? And what have you learned about that? Because in some cases there's overlap. If I care about growing in a certain way for me, maybe that can be leveraged for maximal kind of impact at a company. At the same time, I often find that nuance is kind of hard to pick apart. And that if somebody truly cares about company first, themselves second, really great things happen. And in a lot of the language you used about your 10-year journey, 
I feel like you're that type of person that is steep trajectory, very ambitious, applied to the company first, person second. And I often find that the inverse, one is it's just a nightmare to manage this type of people. It's just very unpleasant. But you can also create some really nasty, unintended consequences. Anything sort of in that area? Yeah. I'm going to borrow a quote that was repeated over and over again in the early days by Dan Chait, who's the CEO and co-founder of Greenhouse. He would always talk about build a great company. You have a lot of great options. And I remember in like the very first year, I'd be like, so when are we going to IPO? You know, it's like, we have one customer and it's like your dad, you know, (laughs) and like, it's not a real company yet. But the core was just be great and you'll have a lot of options. And I think that is true in individual careers. Just show up and do your best at whatever the thing is, and people will probably be knocking down your door to do it with them. So I think it's maybe that simple. The people who get too into their own head about like, what's really going to work for me? I think they should have that at the career level. Like, is this an environment in which I can become the self I need to become? I think that's a really good valid question. And I think it's a good question to even bring to a manager, which is like, I have aspirations to become these things, not this title or this amount of money, but I have like an aspiration to go become this in my life. Those are not things that feel offensive or like an allergic reaction to a manager. If you're not able to have that conversation and then get to a place where you believe that being at this company and providing value is going to be the thing that actually gets you where you want to go, then you can make a career decision for yourself and you know figure out like whether it's the right environment. But I think if you're getting hyper-focused, it's almost like this desperation to achieve this extrinsic expression of like, you know, I've I've got a ton of money, I got a fancy title, I have a lot of power, those types of things. I think they're they're kind of like toxic motivators. And I think that they also do have a sort of polluting relationship with all the other people around you. The best teams are all focused on how do we get the company to win? And when someone's in there, you know, trying to empire build and, and do it for themselves, I think that person often ends up kind of an outcast and has trouble achieving those goals. It's like the cherry picker, <laughs> you know, in sports. Let's use that analogy. Got another one of those metaphors in there. So to wrap up, maybe an interesting place to end. You shared this really great conversation. I think it was with the CTO of Peloton that you had relatively early in your scaling journey. And he gave you this perspective that maybe you need to give up control. And that was an unlock for you. Is there another one of those stories that come to mind? A conversation, sort of a pivotal conversation you had that set you up for a lot of success? And maybe we could kind of use that as an ending point. Yeah, I actually am going to get two different mentors of mine to sort of intersect, but these comments were many years apart. So I was totally lucky to have randomly gone to Jewish youth group with this guy, Dan, who I became you know good friends with. And his older brother is this guy, uh, Mike Afrogan, who is the 26-year-old CTO of Akamai. And I was like, you know, 19 or 20 years old. And we wound up on the same bike riding team. And so I used to go bike riding with him like you know, three or four days a week in the morning. And we talk about business and computer science and all this stuff. And I was always kind of in awe of him, honestly. It was like, you're 26 years old. You guys PhD from MIT in like 10 months. Like this guy's a super genius. And I got to you know, spend time with him. And so one of the things he said, which sounded like a super small comment, was whatever you think you can get done by yourself, you can do more with the team. And I was running my own independent consulting business at the time. And that really landed for me. It was like, oh, if I get good at building teams, then I can sort of accomplish these much bigger things. Now, 
Nothing then really happened. I mean, I didn't take that advice immediately and go do something with it. But then years later, I went from having run my own consulting business to joining a small startup that had gotten acquired by LendingTree, I think like a week after I joined or something like that. And when I showed up, I think I was used to feeling like I just needed to do the best I could do and just like be a rock star. And so I would get all of the work assigned to me done by middle of the day on Wednesday. And then I had the rest of this other half a week to do whatever I found interesting. And so I would do things that I thought were also super impactful for the company, like, you know, make the site faster or, you know, refactor some code base or whatever the thing was. And I remember that I got asked out to breakfast by Ori Schnapps, who's he's now a director at Facebook, but he had been in CTO of this startup. He took me to breakfast and he said, you're screwing up. And I'm like in total shock. I'm like, what do you mean I'm screwing up? Like I you know, got all of, all of my work done by like the middle of the day Wednesday. And I just added all of these other capabilities. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he was like, when you get to that point where you've finished all of your work, you had the choice to either work on something you found interesting or to work as part of the team and figuring out what the team needed to get done and helping all of your colleagues actually like accomplish what it is that they're trying to accomplish as a whole. And as a result, the team resents you. They resent that you're not participating fully as part of the team. And so those two things intersected for me in realizing both the role that somebody plays in a team and how important it is to put the team above the individual fundamentally, and that I hadn't been doing that. And that was damaging to the relationships around me and potentially even the success of the company to have tried to be the consultant type star instead of be a great team member. And then that other sort of echo from my conversation with Mike Afrigan about whatever you can do, you can do more with a team really landed for me. And I internalized it before scaling a lot of the teams at Greenhouse. And I think that put me in the right mindset to be able to keep going and to you know, build it up into what it is now, which is a, a fantastic team. So I'm uh, kind of shocked and proud by the company and team we got to build. Thank you. Thank you. What a great conversation. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Brett.